morning, everybody. Good to be here with you all. My name is Ginny. I'm the associate priest here at Emmanuel. I'm very glad to be kicking off Sundays during Lent with you all this morning. From the very beginning of the church, Lent was a season of preparation for baptism. New converts to the faith would be taught the basics of the faith during the season of Lent, the season uh, right before we would celebrate the resurrection. Uh, That season beforehand was designated as a time in the church calendar to bring in people who wanted to be Christians, to lay out sort of the foundations of the gospel, what it means to be Christian, and then to celebrate all together as a church in the season of Easter, baptizing these people and inviting them in to the church. It's why churches all around the world still follow this rhythm. It's why we follow this rhythm as uh, as a manual. We take the time during the season of Lent to have foundations, which is our baptism prep course, uh, our catechesis course, where we come together and we talk about what it means to be baptized, what it means to be Christian, and then we baptize people in the season of Easter. That's why we do it. We didn't invent it. It's actually very, very old. Um, it's a very good and old thing that we do in the church. So traditionally, Lent is a season of getting back to the basics. It's a season where we ground ourselves in the gospel, in the good news of Jesus. We begin on Ash Wednesday, as many of you were here with us during one of our three services, and at that service, we confess. We take a lot of time to stand before God and say lots of lots of different confessions over and over again together. And we do that because what we're doing in that is we are wiping the slate clean before God. We're like putting all of our stuff out there and asking God to sort it all out and make it new, make the slate clean again. That's what the season of Lent offers us. So in Lent, we go back to the foundations of salvation history. So this year during Lent, I'm really excited to tell you we are going to be doing a study in the covenants during this season. Uh, You are likely familiar with that word if you have been around the church or the Bible for any amount of time. If you come here, you hear me or someone else doing communion say it every week. Uh, This is my blood of the new covenant, which was shed for you and for many for the forgiveness of sins. You've heard this word, even if you maybe don't know what it means. Uh, So we're going to talk about covenants, what they are and why they matter, and we're going to study these uh, within the Bible. So the first thing we need to do, you might have realized I did not uh, read our read the text yet, and that's because I want to do a little bit of an introduction, and then we're going to read a lot of scripture together. So I hope you're ready for that. I'm always ready for that. Um, so let me do a little bit of an introduction on this word and what it is so that when we get into the reading of the text, we can all be on the same page. So covenant, for many of us, all of us probably, it is solely a theological term. It's a term we use when we're talking about and thinking about God. But for the ancient people, it was a cultural term before it ever had any sort of theological significance or any experience of that word with God. It was something that was used in the culture of these people. Covenants were, in the ancient world, a contractual agreement between two parties. An agreement under oath with promises and stipulations. So this could be as small as between individuals, which we actually see in the Bible. We see these agreements between individuals, but we also see them between nations. It's how uh, political things occurred in the ancient world, these agreements between, these, between nations uh, as, as covenants. This is how international alliances were made. 
some mutual, some like all for one and one for all. But a lot of what we see in terms of covenants between nations in the ancient world is a uh, has a power differential, has a very significant power differential, actually. So we're going to learn some words this morning. Are you guys excited? When you talk about covenant, there's two words that you really, really need to know that are not words that we use in our everyday language. Actually, I'm going to have them on the screen for you because they're spelled weird. Uh, so you can write them down if you would like, and you can write them down correctly. So these two words that we need to know are suzerain and vassal. Anyone heard these words before? A few people have heard these words before. Okay. So these are the words that we need to use in, when we're talking about covenants because these explain the sort of power differentials that would happen between nations having to do with covenants. Your worship pastor, Micah Dalton, just took a picture of the screen. I just wanted everybody to know that. It's the only way you're going to write it down, isn't it? I know. It's, it's okay. I love it. It's uh, dad's writing things down. That's what that is. So the suzerain is the powerful nation. In this covenant agreement, the suzerain is the powerful nation. It's the one with the good armies and the resources and all the things that are going to protect the vassal, the weaker nation, the one needing the protection and willing to serve the suzerain nation in exchange for protection. Now, this sounds like a really benevolent agreement, like this incredibly kind, really strong nation just wants to take care of this little vassal nation who just needs protection. And I can tell you, probably 100% of the time, that was never the way it was. It was these smaller nations were going to be taken over by some larger nation in one way or another, and there was usually one nation that they preferred over another. There was usually one that was maybe stronger than another, which like you always want to be associated with more stronger people. So when these covenants were made, they weren't like these vassal nations saying, thank God you're here, take care of us, we'll be in covenant with you. It was, we don't all want to die by the hands of this other nation, so I guess we will be uh, your nation. We'll let you take over us, and you make all the rules, and we'll serve you in any way that you ask in order for us to just stay alive. That's more what covenant, these kinds of covenants looked like back then. So in the Bible, when it talks about making a covenant, so when we make promises with one another, that's the word we use, right? We say make promises. Uh, in the Bible, it often says make covenants. But the real Hebrew translation, does anybody know what's the verb used when you talk about covenants? Cut a covenant. And why is that, Andrew? Because, you, yeah, bloodshed is a part of covenants. So you always would say these two nations cut a covenant with each other. And that's because what would happen is that these covenant ceremonies, these vassal nations would offer sacrifices. So these, you know, dead, bleeding animals on the altars, and they would uh, stand before the suzerain entity, and they would say, may we be like these animals if we don't hold up our end of the bargain. And the suzerain, of course, is standing there in power and watching all of this happen and saying, yes, you most certainly will be like those animals if you don't hold up your end of the bargain because we are the powerful one, the strong one, and you will do whatever we ask, right? That's what these covenants looked like in the ancient world. So <clears throat> that's like the nitty-gritty of covenants. I have so much more to say about it. Thank God we have the next six weeks. So we are actually going to talk more about what that looks like, especially within each covenant. There's new uh, interesting historical information to learn, so we'll be looking at that. But it is important before we jump into our text this morning to ask the question, why does God use covenants to interact with humanity? One of the things that's incredible about the God that we serve is that God loves to use what we know and understand and have within our culture as a way of speaking to us. 
as a way of entering into the world in which we live and offering us a way to understand something in a world in which we would never understand it otherwise. God is incarnational in God's use of covenants. He enters into our space and communicates with us using something temporal that is actually eternal, (laughs) something that's way bigger than we could ever imagine. So why were covenants necessary between us and God? At what point did this term become theological and why? I'm so glad you asked. Why did God use this cultural term, this agreement between two parties to communicate with us and help define our relationship with God? To understand why we need covenants, we have to look at what God's original intent for the world was. When God created this world, he had the intent to dwell in perfect unity with us and with creation. We see that in Genesis 1, don't we? We see God you know, walking in the cool of the evening uh, in the Garden of Eden. But then sin entered into the world, and that was no longer possible. God cannot dwell in perfect unity with an imperfect world. So a rescue plan was thus initiated uh, in Genesis, culminating in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus, and ultimately in God's final intent, the return of Jesus to the earth to dwell in perfect unity with us. God's original intent was Eden. God's final intent was was the new, is the new Jerusalem. If you want to like follow along this rescue plan, that's what we're going to be talking about over the next six weeks, how we go from one to the next. Covenant is one way that we understand and trace God's rescue plan throughout history, throughout scripture. Our Bibles are even set up around this word. Uh, the word testament really means covenant. So when we talk about these two testaments of our Bible, we're saying we're talking about the old covenant and the new covenant. So even the way that we uh, call these parts of our scriptures hinge around this word and how God entered into human history, salvation history, with this, uh, this means of making promises, agreements. So we're going to study the old covenants in order to understand the new one in Jesus Christ, and that's what we're going to celebrate when we come together on Easter Sunday, the new covenant in Jesus Christ. So what we're going to find over the course of the next six weeks today and, and, you know, and forever, we're going to find that God is the suzerain in this covenant agreement. God is the powerful one, and we are the weaker one. We are the vassal, the one that needs help. But instead of God the suzerain lording over us, holding us to our end of the bargain, we will find that God is always benevolent and always willing to hold up our end of the bargain despite ourselves. So before we head into our covenant today, I want to read you a quote from uh, Sandra Richter's book, The Epic of Eden. If this sounds really interesting to you and maybe the Old Testament is new and you want to like find a way to jump in with us, this book is incredible, Epic of Eden. I think we may have some in the bookstore. They may have gotten bought out of the nine. That happens every time we mention a book. Um, <clears throat> so buy this book if you're interested. It's really great. Um, she speaks of the story of this rescue plan. I want to read this quote to you. She says, Yahweh planned a perfect world in which the sons of Adam and the daughters of Eve would live eternally, stretching their cognitive and creative skills to the uttermost, building their civilization within the protective boundaries of their relationship with him. But treason bred tragedy, a broken covenant, a broken race. The end result was that God's people were driven from God's place and forever separated from his presence. 
The only hope in this wretched state of affairs was God's redemptive mercy. Indeed, redemptive history starts right here. For it is with Adam's choice that the saga of redemption begins. Who will pay for the price of Adam's rebellion? How will Adam's race be held accountable and delivered all the same? How do we get Eden back? Although Christians too often think that the story of salvation begins with Jesus, the story actually begins with Adam and Eve. I know for myself that I am unable to share the gospel without speaking of Eden. Because when we ask the salvation question, what we are really asking is, what did the first Adam lose? And when we answer the, question, the salvation question, what we are really attempting to articulate is, what did the second Adam, Jesus, buy back? Let the story begin, she says. So the covenant that we are studying together this morning is the covenant uh, with Noah uh, that happens with Noah and his family and the ark and all of those wonderful things. Uh, so we have the OG Genesis family. We have Adam and Eve and their children in chapter, chapters one through three-ish and um, four-ish. Yeah. And then we have chapter five, which is like just a long genealogy from uh, Adam's family to Noah's family. And a few hundred, several hundred years have gone by. And then all of a sudden, here we are with Noah in chapter six. So it's really not that far into the Bible that this story begins and that we find ourselves with Noah and his family. And let me tell you, in the time of Noah's family, things were not great. They were not good times. So let's go to Genesis 6 and read about this time together. The Lord saw that the wickedness of humankind was great in the earth and that every inclination of the thoughts of their hearts was only evil continually. And the Lord was sorry that he had made humankind on the earth and it grieved him to his heart. So the Lord said, I will blot out from the earth the human beings I have created, people together with animals and creeping things and birds of the air, for I am sorry that I have made them. If that doesn't make you ask a lot of questions in your heart, you should go read it again. Uh, a lot of things happening there, which we are going to continue to talk about, but a couple things I will note just very quickly is this idea when he says, every inclination of the thoughts of their hearts was only evil continually. If you read the Hebrew, it basically sounds like this. It was always evil, every time, all the time, always. It's like all, these words for all used over and over and over again, which is made to make us think as readers of the text, like to imagine a world that is only and completely evil. I think it was entirely different from the world you and I are living in. Not that there isn't evil in the world today, most certainly, but it was the kind of evil that is indescribable that the writer here has to use this word over and over again. Every inclination of the heart was towards evil. It does not sound like a wonderful place to be or to live in. And of course, if the creation is this way, only evil, it grieves the heart of the creator. And that's what we're seeing here. The Lord is sorry that he has made the earth, and it grieves him in his heart. So let's keep reading together. Noah was a righteous man, blameless in his generation. Noah walked with God, and Noah had three sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. If you need a baby name, you're welcome. Now the earth was corrupt in God's sight, and the earth was filled with violence. 
And God saw that the earth was corrupt, for all flesh had corrupted its ways upon the earth. And God said to Noah, I have determined to make an end of all flesh. Wouldn't you love to be Noah? What a, what a wild time. For the earth is filled with violence because of them, and now I'm going to destroy them along with the earth. But I will establish my covenant with you, and you shall come into the ark, you, your sons, your wife, and your sons' wives with you. And of every living thing, of all flesh, you shall bring two of every kind into the ark to keep them alive with you. They shall be male and female, of the birds according to their kind and of the animals according to their kinds, of every creeping thing of the ground according to its kind. Two of every kind shall come into you to keep them alive. And also take with you every kind of food that is eaten and store it up, and it shall serve as food for you and for them. Noah did this. He did all that the Lord commanded him. And as many of us know it, even if we didn't grow up in the church, Noah does build this ark, and he does take these animals into the ark, and the flood does come. And the earth is completely flooded, and every living thing that is not in the ark is gone, is destroyed. Finally, the flood subsides after 40 days, and land appears, and eventually Noah leads everyone out of the ark and onto the dry land. So now let's go to Genesis 8. And we're doing a lot of reading, but there's a lot to to build up to this covenant that we're in today, okay? Chapter 8. <clears throat> then Noah built an altar to the Lord and took of every clean animal and every clean bird and offered burnt offerings on the altar. And when the Lord smelled the pleasing odor, the Lord said in his heart, I will never again curse the ground because of humankind, for the inclination of the human heart is evil from youth. For I will never again destroy every living creature as I have done, as long as the earth endures, seed time and harvest, cold and heat, summer and winter, day and night, shall not cease. Then God said to Noah and his, to his sons with him, As for me, I am establishing my covenant with you and your descendants after you, and with every living creature that is with you, the birds, the domestic animals, and every animal of the earth with you, as many as came out of the ark. I establish my covenant with you that never again shall all flesh be cut off by the waters of a flood, and never again shall there be a flood to destroy the earth. God said, This is the sign of the covenant that I make between me and you and every living creature that is with you for all future generations. I have set my bow in the clouds. What's the bow? A rainbow. I've set my bow in the clouds, and it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and the earth. When I bring clouds over the earth and the bow is seen in the clouds, I will remember my covenant that is between me and you and every living creature of all flesh. And the water shall never again become a flood to destroy all flesh. When the bow is in the clouds, I will see it and remember the everlasting covenant between God and every living creature of all flesh that is on the earth. God said to Noah, this is the sign of the covenant that I have established between me and all flesh that is on the earth. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. <clears throat> One of the most interesting things to me about this covenant is this usage of uh, speaking of God's heart. So what's the first heart thing that we see in the narrative of Noah? That he's grieved to his heart, right? And then something in his heart changes. Can you go back to that um, first slide in this section of text that we just read? The note, yeah. Then Noah built an altar to the Lord, blah, 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 blah. When the Lord smelled the pleasing odor, the Lord said in his heart, I will never again curse the ground because of humankind. For what? What does it say? 
So we didn't get better after the flood? Like the flood came and then our hearts were changed. No, whose heart was changed? God's. That's the incredible thing about this text. We are watching the heart of God change, move towards us, recognize that we are always evil all the time, always, and that if God doesn't do something about it, nothing will ever change. God has to be the one to hold up our end of the bargain, and God here is promising to do that. Not even the flood can change the inclination of the human heart. This is good news that we are witnessing here. This is gospel news that we are witnessing. That even though God says, my creation will never be naturally bent towards me and my purposes, I will stick with them, no matter what. Walter Brueggemann says this, God takes as his vocation not judgment, but the resilient work of affirmation on behalf of the death creature. I love being called a death creature, don't you? basically what we say on Ash Wednesday. (laughs) The flood has affected no change in humankind, but it has affected an irreversible change in God who will now approach his creation with an unlimited patience and forbearance. Even though we have grieved God, God will stick with us. And not only that, that it will cost God. How do we know that God will stick with us? And how do we know that it will cost him? What's the sign of the covenant in this text? The rainbow. The bow was a weapon of war. And when God makes this covenant with mankind, he sets his bow in the clouds, and now who is the arrow pointed at? At God, at God's own heart. The bow is not only the sign that God is with us and will stick with us, but that God will take on every wound that it will cost to redeem us that no longer will we have to be like the animals that is sacrificed in order to please the suzerain, to please our God. God will be all the sacrifice needed for us and on our behalf. This bow, this weapon of war, is now forever pointed at the heart of God. Noah's covenant is a recreational covenant. It's a sort of redoing of Genesis 1, which is pretty fascinating because it's only six chapters in, you know? You're like, if there has to be a recreation, shouldn't it be like in Joshua? Like, shouldn't we be like hundreds of years down the, you know, thousands of years down the road? But instead it's like five minutes after we are created, we need a brand new creation. That's what we find in Genesis. That's what Noah is basically telling us. It's a recreational moment. Humans have screwed it up so bad beyond, almost beyond repair, so fast that a recreation needs to happen. So we're reminded as we see these images in the story of Noah, these same images that we saw in Genesis 1. We see the watery chaos. Do you remember that from Genesis 1? That the world is formless and void. It's watery chaos. And what does God do? He sends a spirit over the waters to hover over it, and he starts creating order and life out of this watery chaos. And what happens with Noah? If you know the story, we have the watery chaos again. And then what comes out of the sky? A dove. As a sign that there is life beyond this, right? There is life coming. Where else do we see the Holy Spirit like a dove? 
the story of Je- and Pentecost, um, at the story of Jesus' baptism, right? It's this sign that the Holy Spirit is coming and there will be life on the other side no, no matter how terrible and destructive things look right now, right in front of us. At the center of Noah's covenant is a second chance. God is making himself known through this covenant as a God of second chances. I love that, again, I love that this doesn't happen like way down the line, right from the get-go. You can't even like, you could probably read the first 10 10 chapters in like 10 minutes. Right from the first 10 minutes of reading your Bible, God's already making himself known as a God of second chances. Of reconciliation and of new beginnings. And what's really cool about that is that is what the season of Lent is as well. It's a season of new beginnings. Lent is an opportunity to start over again. It's a season of reconciliation and recreation. We fast during the season of Lent, and this fasting is a way for us to make space for God so that we can be recreated. We can invite God into the spaces of the things that we've said no to. It's a way to feel the need we have for God and thus uh, be recreated in that. To see the ways in which you and I have been throughout the year living like an old creation and are being invited now into what it means to be a new creation. Here's what Paul says about being a new creation. So if anyone is in Christ, there is a new creation. Everything old has passed away and see everything has become new. All this is from God who reconciled us to himself through Christ and has given us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them. Sounds a lot like our covenant stuff, doesn't it? Not counting their trespasses against them and entrusting the message of reconciliation to us. So we are ambassadors for Christ. Since God is making his appeal through us, We entreat you on behalf of Christ to be reconciled to God. For our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. God is a God of second chances. Wherever you are in your life, there is an opportunity. There is like a hand of peace reaching out to you all the time. This covenant is a reminder of that. I also can't let you leave but without like publicly acknowledging together how troubling this story is. <laughs> it's troubling that everything flooded and everything was dead, you know? Like anytime my daughter gets something that's Noah related, I'm like, you will learn about this later. Like we will put this away and talk about this at a later time because it brings up so many questions. Does it trouble you? <laughs> Somebody was like, yes. <laughs> It troubles us. It's a troubling story. And I would be lying to you if I said, now I'm going to tell you all the reasons why it's not troubling. I have the theological answers. Here you go. I don't have them. What I can say to you is the way that I have wrestled through this text personally is that it troubles me, makes me wonder a lot of things, but it also makes me wonder about a God who is all-powerful and could blot us out in a second and chose instead to be faithful to us despite what it would cost him. 
and over and over again, as we will see in the covenants, over and over again moves towards us and deeper and deeper into our space to pay the price so that he could dwell with us again. That causes me more wonder in this story than I have dread from this story. And that's how I like walk away with peace. John Golden Gay, who's a, uh, that is his real name, and um, which I love. And he uh, is an Old Testament theology person and I think he's the greatest. So if you want Old Testament help, you should read his books. He says, it is reassuring when God makes a covenant. It is a commitment that, that has all of God's character behind it. God cannot break this commitment without ceasing to be God. And that is how I walk away more trusting than I am troubled from this text. The last thing I'll say about this is Noah. That name, Noah, in Hebrew means rest, which has also been confusing to me over the years when I think about this story. I'm not like, yeah, that was a guy who rested, you know. <laughs> but when I look at that word and where it appears in other places in the Old Testament, a lot of how it's translated is relief. And that was really compelling to me, more than rest was even. And it made me think of the story. Um, when I was first starting out as a, as a youth pastor at this church many years ago, I had a um, very sweet little youth group of about 10 middle school boys. And uh, if nothing else, like that youth group and them continuing to come to this nice young lady youth pastor week after week is a sign that the Holy Spirit is real and powerful. And um, mostly we played games because they were middle school boys. We had a very nice time. Um, but there was one kid who started coming with his friend um, after you know, me being, being the youth pastor for a few years. This, this eighth grader started coming with his friend which was great. And um, after a few times of him coming, he stayed after for a minute and told me he was interested in being baptized, which was really exciting. And um, so we started having conversations about that and just I started learning more and more about this kid. And um, it became really clear to me that he was pretty deeply troubled in his heart over himself and that there may be a God in the universe and that there may be something between them. And whatever that was needed to get washed away removed. And for him, from what he had heard about Christianity, <laughs> baptism was how he knew he was, he was going to have that thing washed away. And um, so we had lots of conversations, obviously over pizza, and, um, and this, this sign of wanting to be made right with God became more and more clear. So it finally the day came for him to be baptized. I think we have a picture, which chokes me up every time I look at it. Um, and we baptized him, and then I saw him a couple weeks later at youth. And I kind of like just, jo not jokingly, but was very like nonchalant about it. I was like, hey, how do you feel? And he looked at me with like the deepest sincerity that a 13-year-old boy can have, and he says, I feel clean. And that is what we walk away from, from this text, is, is that kind of relief that God has made a way for us and there will be no amount of times that you can screw it up where he won't continue to reach out. That's what we will learn as we see covenant after covenant after covenant. God will continue to work uh, for us and move towards us. There is nothing that can stop the Spirit of God from coming and making his home in us and at home in this world. 
And that's why the final intent is that, for God to come back here and to make this world his own and dwell with us. That is why all the covenants exist. That is why Jesus came to live and to die and to rise again so that he can come here and live with us and be with us. And if that doesn't give you some sense of relief, honest to God, I don't know what will. We can read this text now in all of its troubling nature and look at that and look at this name, this Noah. <sighs> Thank you, Lord. The God of second chances. That's what all of this is about. Every week we come here and we take a taste of what second chance feels like and tastes like. And that is really, really good news for all of us. So I hope we can all feel very relieved as we leave in the spirit today. So let's stand if you're able and we will come to the table together. Amen. If you are wondering, um, as if you're baptized and you're wondering, you know, what's in it for me? If this is a season to prepare for baptism, what's in it for me? Let me tell you a quote from the Quakers. Um, they would say that we must be improving on our baptism, which I really like, and also making use of our baptism. So even if you are a baptized person, you have an opportunity this Lent uh, to make use of your baptism, to improve upon it. That is the invitation for all of us this season. If you are not baptized and want to be baptized, we want to do that for you. And we would love to have you come to Foundations with us as we study um, what it means to be Christian together, which will be uh, my favorite time of the year. It's going to be such a wonderful time. And if you are um, coming for whatever reason, we'll be so happy to see you there on Tuesday. Uh, but if not, uh, have a wonderful wonderful week. God bless you all, and we'll see you next week.